I get a, uh, a feed, email feed, and it's basically what happens on this day in Christian history. And I thought this was kind of interesting. This has nothing to do with the message, by the way, but I just thought I would share this with you. But on this day in 1178, that's a long time ago, on June 24th, 1178, five Canterbury monks in Britain report something exploding upon the moon. It is the only time in recorded history that an asteroid impact has been observed with the naked eye. I don't know why I found that interesting, but I found that very interesting, so I thought I'd share it with you. And maybe on a darker note, on this day in history, in 64 AD, the Roman Emperor Nero begins persecuting Christians. And so our heritage, our legacy that we have uh, is... Uh, very impactful each day that we live. Something has happened in our history, in our past. And how appropriate when we think about uh, the emperor's persecution of the Christians in the Roman Empire because we are in this very familiar passage about spiritual warfare and about the armor and about standing firm as Christians in spiritual warfare because we do have an adversary, uh, an adversary that the Greeks called Satan uh, and the Hebrews called the devil, and uh, one means uh, the imposter or the one who tricks us, and the other one is uh, the accuser. Uh, but Satan has many cunning devices to trip us up as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, we need to recognize the danger we are all in, really. And that's what the Apostle Paul is emphasizing here in this letter to the church at Ephesus, and by extension, uh, we have received it as part of God's word, and it is worthy for our study and application. Remember, the first three chapters are the riches we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, and the last three chapters are applying that wealth that we have into day-to-day -day life, how we live out our lives. The Apostle Paul uses the metaphor of walking, and uh, the idea is of a lifestyle, how we live out each day, and so he talks about that in this chapter. But we come to chapter 6, and in verse 10, as Dave read for us, it says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Any strength that we have that is uh, meet any kind of power of satanic warfare is really God's power. It is not our power. It is not our physical prowess or emotional or spiritual prowess that does that. It is God's strength, God's might. Three times it talks about three different words related to strength here. And he tells us in verse 11 to put on the full armor of God so that we will be able to what? Stand firm. Up until this point, he tells us to walk, and we think of a lifestyle of walking, but here he changes the metaphor to standing firm. We're not conquering new territory. We're only standing firm in what God has already done in our lives. And remember the letter to the church at Ephesus was written to a church, not to individuals necessarily, although the church is made up of individuals, but it is about the strength of the church and about the wealth of the church. And remember, the church is not this physical structure around us. The church are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are a local expression of the body of Christ. And so we are an expression of his worldwide church, the church universal that began in Acts chapter 2 and continues on until Jesus returns and comes back, and so we are uh, to be strong. We are to stand firm, but he tells us why in verse 12, because our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
I think so often we evangelicals get caught up in thinking that our enemy is somebody in Washington or somebody uh, someplace else in places of political power or, or <clears throat> cultural power, societal power, and that is our enemy because they are going against what God's uh, will would be. And we un- I understand that, and yet he tells us very clearly here that our struggle in verse 12 is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. And he's referring to these legions of demons. Remember when Satan fell in time past before uh, what we read in Genesis 1-1, that he was Lucifer. He was an angel of light. He was probably the premier archangel, and he chose in his own pride. Remember, angels are created beings, and they have the ability to make choices. And uh, he chose out of his pride. He wanted to be like God, and he was cast out of heaven. And with him, legions and myriads and upon myriads of other angels who chose to rebel against God, and so they make up what are called the demonic forces, and uh, Satan is active, but he is limited. Remember, we've talked about Satan and the demonic forces, that they are not all-powerful, they are not all-knowing, they are not any of those omni-words. They are created beings, but they are very powerful in the sense uh, that they have had thousands upon thousands of years of experience of cunningness and craftiness of dark arts of evil, And uh, we are no match for them. That's why the Apostle Paul is reminding us that our strength is found in the Lord and his strength and his might. And in verse 13, he tells us, therefore, in light of these things I've just told you in verses 10 through 12, take on the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Uh, to do everything we can to resist. But notice it's the full armor, and notice whose armor it is. It's not our armor, it's God's armor. And that's where we pick it up there. And then verse 14, again, that imperative verb, stand firm, therefore. Uh, Anytime you see repetition in Scripture, take note, because there is a point being made, and the point is stand firm. Okay, good, all right, stand firm. And then he's going to list for us these items of armor that we are to have. And he lists six items here, and we are doing one each Sunday. And lest you think that I'm taking way too long to go through these first verses, let me remind you of some historical writing. In 1655, there was a Puritan minister named William Gurnall, and he was a pastor of a church in England, And he published a treatise entitled The Christian and the Complete Armor. And it was on the 11 verses, verses 10 through 21 here, uh, that he wrote this treatise on. And uh, the 19, or excuse me, the 1821 edition has three volumes, 261 chapters, and 1,472 pages, although it was only an exposition of these 11 verses. So you can see that we are by no means exhausting these 11 verses. And and in the 20th century, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who is a very famous theologian and pastor and radio preacher, basically, he wrote a very fine and full exposition of these same 11 verses, and they were two volumes entitled The Christian Warfare and The Christian Soldier. And those two books totaled 736 pages And uh, the first volume had 21 uh, chapters just dedicated to the wiles of the devil. 
In other words, how Satan can trick us, can uh, cause us to do things. And so uh, lest you think that we're spending five or six weeks in these verses, uh, just be thankful that I'm not handing you three volumes of 1,500 pages to read (laughs) during that time. All I can say is those guys didn't have TV, and they got a lot done, didn't they? You know, they got a lot done. So, But I, I was also reading about uh, the Great Wall of China, and some of you have probably been there. And uh, the Great Wall of China, of course, was built in, in, uh, to protect them from invading forces. It's uh, most places 30 feet high, 18 feet thick, and more than 1,500 miles long. Uh, it's a massive structure. I would love to see it personally, but I've not. Uh, but the Chinese goal, the, the people's goal there, was to build an absolutely impregnable, impregnable defense, too high to climb over, too thick to break down, and too long to go around. But during the first 100 years of the wall's existence, China was successfully invaded three times. And what, uh, it wasn't the wall's fault either. Because uh, all three invasions, the barbaric hordes never climbed over the wall. They never broke it down. They never went around it. They simply bribed the gatekeeper to let them in. And then they would march right through an open gate. The purpose of the wall failed because there was a breakdown in values, wasn't there? A breakdown in understanding the bigger picture and why it was there itself. Let me pray this morning. Heavenly Father, again, we come to your word. We pray for attentive hearts and minds that we would be a people who rightly think about who and what you are, that we would allow your word and your Holy Spirit to inform our thinking, and not just our thinking, it begins there, but our behavior and our actions in day-to-day life, and that we would have the recognition that, Lord, there is an adversary out there, and he seeks nothing more than to destroy our families, destroy our church, destroy us as individuals, and, Lord, we thank you that you are the almighty God. There is none like you. And you have provided us with the armor uh, that will protect us and that we can stand firm for the cause of the Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray. Amen and amen. Well, if I told you, now bear with me so I can pronounce this, to put on your polyparaphenylene terephthalamide vest, would you know what to do? No, you probably wouldn't, because I wouldn't know either. But the popular or the commercial name of that chemical is Kevlar. And uh, as you see, our military men and women scattered around the world, they wear body armor, and probably it contains Kevlar. Our local police force, law enforcement, wears body armor, and it's Kevlar. It's an interesting uh, material. It was almost discovered, well, it was discovered by accident in 1965 by a chemist at DuPont. Her name was Stephanie Qualak, Qualak, uh, and uh, she discovered it, and they started uh, to check it out and to develop it into other products, but it was primarily used for defensive or tactical armor, but it's spread from there, and uh, it is five times stronger than steel, and it doesn't melt, and all sorts of characteristics that make it kind of the miracle fiber, if you will, Uh, and uh, but In fact, it even has been used in Nike athletic shoes. They have incorporated Kevlar into some of those shoes and into garden hoses and just a lot of day-to-day usages. And yet we know that our law enforcement officers and our military men and women wear bulletproof vests, what we call them, to protect them. 
And if a military person in a combat zone or a law enforcement officer went into a dangerous situation without their armor, we would call them forgetful, careless, or maybe even stupid, wouldn't we? Uh, because it is important to wear that protective gear. And so we come today to this item of the breastplate of righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. And uh, that is the second item of armor. We looked at the first one, the belt, uh, or the, the girding your loins is the Old Testament phraseology, but it's the idea of a belt which things hang on. It is the belt of truth. And uh, we don't want to get into a Roman armor presentation, but yet the Apostle Paul is using this metaphor, this picture, uh, because he was chained to a Roman uh, soldier. He was under house arrest in Rome when he wrote this letter in about 62 A.D., uh, just before the Neronian persecutions, by the way. And uh, he tells us, and he uses the picture that the belt is where the scabbard for the sword goes, and the other items of armor are hooked onto the belt. And so it's important that this truth that uh, is to be girding us is there all the time. And we talked about that last week. It means not only absolute truth or doctrinal truth, God's truth, but it means living a life of integrity and truthfulness. There's not only the position we have because of what God has done. Remember, this is God's armor. Uh, this is his truth, but yet it'll have practical implications in the sense of how we live out our lives, live the, living them out with integrity and truthfulness is the idea here, that it gird us, that it surrounds us. And then we start hanging everything else on that character of truth not only doctrinal truth, but our lives of integrity. Because otherwise, <clears throat> righteousness does not come here without truth pervading us in that way. And so the second item is this, this breastplate of righteousness. And of course, the picture for us is the tactical armor that military and law enforcement wear. And that is a picture that would be a 21st century contemporary metaphor of what the Apostle Paul was getting through. But he says this breastplate of righteousness, of righteousness. And we think of that armor that covers our chest and our important vital organs, and it is critical. And the question remains is what kind of righteousness are we talking about here? What kind of righteousness is the Apostle Paul talking about? Well, first of all, there is this positional righteousness. And Romans chapter 3, verse 10 tells us that there is none righteous, no, not one. That is the bad news, if you will, for everybody in the world, is that nobody, no matter how good they think they are, is not righteous according to God's righteous standards. You know, if you think of really good people who've done a lot of really good things and you put them on a scale from zero to 100, and God is perfection at 100, where would uh, Mother Teresa fit? Well, she might be about a 75%. And what about Billy Graham? Well, Billy Graham did wonderful things. He might be at 90%. And, uh, you know, you can list off a number of people who've done great things in Christian history. And where would they hit? But nobody, nobody hits 100%. And then the question is, where would I fall? Well, of course, I'm not as good as Mother Teresa. I haven't done all that social work. And Billy Graham, I've not preached to millions the gospel. Well, maybe down about 35%. Well, the point is, for everyone, there is still a gap. We have no righteousness. It tells us in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not even one. 
The psalmist in Psalm 14 and verses 1 through 3 said these words, The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. I don't want you to be foolish today. If anybody here says there is no God, really listen to these words. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. What an indictment of the human race. You know, I think if you're with me, we have some words to say to Adam and Eve when we get to heaven, don't we? We've inherited this sin nature, this thing that I want my way and I want it now and I want everything I want. The sin nature, the satisfaction of the flesh, whatever manifestation it takes, we are indicted. Then the Apostle Paul in the little letter of Philippians says this in chapter 3, verses 8 through 11. And this is kind of his swan song. He's kind of uh, coming to the end of his ministry, his life here on earth, and he knows it. And he says these words, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having, now watch this, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and be conformed to his death in order that I, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Did you notice the Apostle Paul's not depending on his righteousness, his good works, his standing, his heritage, his skills, anything, but he wants the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You know, righteousness, the word righteousness and the word holiness are almost synonymous in Scripture, yet there are shades of differences. Lewis Ferry Chafer, the founder of Dallas Theological Seminary, writes this in his systematic theology about God's holiness. Now, you've got a track here because this is a little bit archaic in language, but yet uh, there's this idea that God is completely other. Uh, you know, today it just drives me nuts sometimes when we sing songs that God is my good buddy or my lover. Yes, he does love us, but remember his holiness. Chafer writes, the holiness of God is active. As a primary motive, it incites all that he does. Therefore, he is righteous in all his ways. Though infinitely holy, he nevertheless maintains a relation to fallen creatures. He is not aloof from us, but a vital, pulsating nearness. His is not a holiness which is engendered by a sustained effort or preserved by segregation from other beings. The holiness of God is intrinsic, uncreated and untarnished it is observable every it is observable in every divine attitude and action it embraces not only his devotion to that which is good but is also the very basis and force of his hatred about all that is evil thus there is in divine holiness the capacity for reaction towards others which is both positive and negative god is absolutely holy he is absolutely set apart. He is absolutely separate from evil. 
We need to get a grip on that, this God we serve. And Charles Ryrie writes about God's righteousness. And he writes these words. He says, though related to holiness, righteousness is that nevertheless a distinct attribute of God. Holiness relates to God's separateness, righteousness to his justice, to his justice. And this is an important key, by the way, when relating what is righteousness with justice, especially in our world today, as we see so much injustice. Ryrie goes on the right. Righteousness has to do with law, morality, and justice. In relation to himself, God is righteous. That is, there is no law either within his own being or his own making which is violated by anything in his nature. In relation to his creatures, he is also righteous. That is, there is no action which he takes that violates any code of morality or justice. Sometimes these two aspects of righteousness are called absolute and relative in relationship to his creation. God is absolutely righteous. When we rest upon that, then the things and circumstances and adversities that come into our lives, we recognize that God does not make any mistakes, and God is not out of control. The Bible teaches his sovereignty is working all things out for our good and for his glory. That is sovereignty, and God is absolutely righteous. The psalmist writes in chapter 11, the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Daniel 9, 7, Daniel writes, Righteousness belongs to thee, O Lord. It is his alone. It's a righteous judgment of God, and it's called justification. When we think of righteousness in this Christian term, justification, we think that God has declared the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ righteous. Let that sink in a minute. Because there are many days I don't feel very righteous in my attitudes, my actions, you know, whatever. And yet God has declared, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you are righteous. It's a declarative act of God based upon the sufficiency, not of who we are, but on Christ's atoning act on the cross of Calvary. It's 100% Jesus Christ, 0% us in how we are saved for eternity. You know, the requirements of the law is that we had to live per- perfectly. Paul in, in Romans talks about if you break one of the laws, you've broken them all. And there are none righteous, remember? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the cardinal doctrine of Christianity is grace through faith. This idea that uh, when we come, become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a forensic act because of what Jesus has done. He declares us righteous because Jesus Christ has taken our place on the cross of Calvary. He is the perfect sacrifice who paid for the sins of the whole world. And we call that justification, or the Bible calls that justification. And it is this idea that I have been saved from the penalty of sin. Because the penalty is for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. And death in that passage means separation. We know that physical death is separation of our spirit and soul from our physical body. But there is everlasting, eternal, spiritual separation from God himself, our creator. And he desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of him. 
And so we come to this righteousness. There is this declaration that we are given righteousness. It is a positional truth. It is Jesus Christ's holy and righteous person who is imputed. His character is imputed to the believer. Well, that raises a problem if you think about it very much. If you think about the problem with justification, there is a dilemma for God. Have you ever thought about that? This is a dilemma for God the Father. Uh, God is judge without injustice. He is completely righteous in all of his decisions. So the dilemma is this. The question is, is how can he declare a sinner righteous? Romans 4, chapter chapter 4, verse 5 says, God declares and justifies the ungodly. How can he do that? Well, he has three options, three options. The first one is he must condemn sinners. And before we become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, everybody is hell-bound. It's like a waterfall of humanity all going into hell. And it's only because of Jesus Christ that anybody can become a believer. But he must condemn sinners. The other option is he must compromise his own righteousness and receive sinners as they are. And we know he cannot do that in his character. And thirdly, he can change them into righteous people. And that is exactly what he's done. He's justified sinners actually. It's not a fictitious story. It's not fiction. They are truly righteous in his eyes. And that is the bottom line question. How do we, as sinful people, when the time comes, stand before God the Father who is righteous and holy? How do we even stand there and claim any ability to be accepted by him for eternity? In myself, I have nothing. I have nothing. You know, because I recognize any good works I do are like filthy rags, as Isaiah tells us. And the procedure of justification. Go back with me to Romans chapter 3. Page back to Romans chapter 3. Remember Ephesians is kind of the Reader's Digest version of Romans. And uh, so Romans chapter 3, very briefly we will look here in verses 21 through 26. Uh, The plan centers. This is God's plan. And it centers on the God-man, Jesus Christ. Verse 21 of Romans chapter 3. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, that being manifested as Jesus Christ came in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, came in human flesh, the perfect God-man, and was manifested. In other words, he was witnessed and he was foretold by the law and the prophets. So the plan centers on the person of Christ. And how do we appropriate what he has given us? In verse 22, it says the prerequisite is faith, not because of faith, but through faith. Verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, there is no distinction. And so believing is the key, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ that his righteousness will be imputed to us so that we will be able to stand before God the Father, the righteous holy God, and say, he can accept me in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because it is Christ and Christ alone. It is also the price paid was the blood of Christ. Look at verse 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, verse 24, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, that means satisfaction, in his blood through the faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. This is a way of saying that 
Even the Old Testament saints, they didn't know Jesus was the Messiah, and yet they had faith in God. Abraham had faith, and it was uh, imputed to him as righteousness. He believed. He had faith. He didn't know how God was going to complete it. We have 20-20 hindsight. We know the Messiah came. We know that he took our place on Calvary, rose again, gaining the victory over sin and death. And we know this. And he says that this is we, by faith, believe in him. By the way, in our day and age, the gospel is being polluted tremendously through popular writings all over this country, all over evangelicalism, and there is additions to it. Lordship salvation, baptism salvation, do this, do that, and people are adding all sorts of attributes to the clear teaching of the gospel. Over 150 times in the New Testament, the requirement to, to uh, attain heaven is belief in the Lord Jesus Christ plus nothing. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. This is being fully persuaded that Jesus is who he said he was and that he will carry it out and complete everlasting life. I think our brothers who are and sisters who are confused on the gospel are confusing the aspect of sanctification and applying the requirements for sanctification with the requirements for justification. And it's to their peril because it's a heretical gospel. Let me be very clear about that. And you will probably run across it in all sorts of writings. Uh, and the question to ask is, what is the bottom line of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ? If it isn't John 3.16, it is not the good news if they're adding other things to it. And then verse 26, the pronouncement by God that sinners are righteous back here in th Romans 3. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier, the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus Christ is the one who justifies us, imputes righteousness to us. So there is this idea that uh, God has paid it all. This is the procedure. God has solved what we see as the problem. And then the proof, if we were to take time and look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 11, the proof of justification now, I asked Paul and Diana Mayhew this morning if this following illustration was true, and they said, yes, it is. And uh, in the Chinese characters, you know, Chinese characters, uh, they, they're symbolic. Some of them are symbolic. And there's a character which forms the concept of righteousness there. It is composed of two separate characters, one which stands for the word lamb or sheep, and the other which stands for the word me. And so when the lamb is placed directly above the me, a new character is formed, and you can translate that righteousness. What a picture. I don't think, as Paul said, that wasn't intended in the Chinese characters, and yet that is a teaching that comes right out of it. God's truth pervades all cultures and all languages. Between me, the sinner, and God, the Holy One, is interposed uh, by faith the Lamb of God, and by virtue of his sacrifice, he has received me on the ground of faith, and I've become righteous in his sight, all of because of what Jesus Christ has done. The promises in the word of God, especially Romans 5, 1, 11, are the proof. And if you struggle with your assurance of your salvation and your security, if you don't know one day to the next whether you're going to heaven or not, you need to understand the assurance that is given to us, the security. Security is that God is, is holding on to his people. He will not let us go, Romans, the end of Romans chapter 8. Uh, and assurance is a man to God that we have assurance. How do you have assurance? 
Well, a lot of these uh, other evangelicals are teaching that you have to do a lot of good works. Otherwise, you don't know if you're saved. They call it initial salvation and final salvation. They say you can have initial salvation, but you won't have final salvation unless you live a lordship kind of life. That is a lie from the pit of hell because that's not what the Bible tells us. When you are saved, you are secure because of what Jesus Christ has done, and you are assured because of what his word has said, his promises. Read Romans 5, 1 through 11, if you will. And then the testimony of the word of God. The apostles were assured of their salvation. Luke 10, John 13. Timothy was assured of his salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 1. Titus was assured of his salvation. Martha, remember Martha, John 11, 25 through 27. The Philippian jailer in Acts 16. Cornelius, Acts 10. The 120 on the day of Pentecost, Acts 1, Acts 2, Acts 11. They were assured they all had 100% certainty of their salvation. The promises of the word of God were enough for them. When I'm asked, how do you know you're assured you're going to heaven? I say, it's not based on what I do. It's based on what God's word says. And his righteousness is imputed. By the way, if the apostle Paul in Romans, if he hadn't promised us everlasting life, he would have used another Greek word. There's numerous other Greek words for part-time life or almost part-time or almost eternal life. But he uses the word and Jesus uses the word everlasting life. It is a certainty. It is secure. So what kind of righteousness? Uh, Brian Burrell, who wrote a book called Words We Live By, he used the illustration of an armed robber named Dennis Lee Curtis, who was arrested in Rapid City, South Dakota. Curtis apparently had scruples about his thievery. Uh, In his wallet, when the police searched his wallet, they found a sheet of paper on which he wrote his following scruples or his personal code. Number one, I will not kill anyone unless I have to. Number two, I will take cash and food stamps, but no checks. Number, he's not that dumb, is he? Number three, I will only rob at night. Number four, I will not wear a mask. Right there was one of his downfalls, I think. Number five, I will not rob many marts or 7-Eleven stores. Number six, if I get chased by the cops on foot, I will get away. If chased in a vehicle, I will not put the lives of innocent civilians on the line. Number seven, I will only rob seven months out of the year. I like that one. I guess he was going to to Antigua in the winter, I think. Number eight, I will enjoy robbing from the rich to give to the poor. Well, we can see that this particular thief, uh, uh, Dennis Lee Curtis, had... A sense of morality, okay? We have to give him that. Admit that, yeah, he's, he's trying to do something right in a certain way. But it was really flawed, wasn't it? And when he stood before the court, he was not judged by the standards he had set for himself, was he? No, but he was judged by the higher law of the state, and he paid the consequences. You know, likewise, when we stand before God, we will not be judged by the code of morality that we have written for ourselves But God's perfect law, his judge, and his righteousness. And yet Romans tells us, Romans 8, 1, tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. So if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, remember that your works will be judged at the Bema seat of judgment, but not your salvation. You are secure. But if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be judged. 
And that is a sad, sad thing because you have the opportunity to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that is the positional, doctrinal truth of righteousness. We are set apart. We are imputed the righteousness of God. That's why we're called saints in Scripture, one set apart unto his use. And we have a future and a hope because of Jesus Christ. We've been saved from the penalty of sin. But now in this sanctification process where we are being saved from the very uh, <coughs> power of sin, uh, what is the picture of righteousness in our lives? And here's the priority of the armor. It's how we live out our lives every day. Believers are to stand firm wearing all the full armor. If we leave off the breastplate of righteousness, uh, you could be open to Satan's attacks, can't you? Uh, when I was helping being a chaplain for our local police department, they took us out to the gun range and we got to fire some of the weapons that they use and uh, talk about body armor. And I was taught uh, in handgun usage that uh, when shooting, you would stand sideways like this, but no longer because, you know why? Because if a law enforcement officer did that, there's an exposed part under his arm and that could, that could do him in. And so they're trained to keep the body armor the biggest target. And uh, so this presence of righteousness in our lives is the, the picture of righteousness, the priority, the protection of the armor uh, in that. And then the presence of righteousness in our lives, the proper definition of righteousness. Uh, when we think of righteousness, there can be self-righteousness, like the scribes and the Pharisees and the Gospels, it can be positional righteousness in Romans 8, 1 that I just quoted for you, 2 Corinthians, that imputation, and then practical righteousness. We're given the righteousness of Christ at our salvation, and we're given the presence of the Holy Spirit to guide us in the truth, to be our comforter, to lead us, and that only guarantees that we can live each day as we should. In fact, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter says, he has given us the power to live lives of godliness every day. And that's the power of the Holy Spirit using his word in our life. And the characteristic of righteousness is holiness. It's a distinctive lifestyle marked by a dedication to something bigger than ourselves, bigger than ourselves. That's why I'm so amazed at uh, the, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. It is much bigger than us. It is going on 21 centuries and is around the world. It is transnational, transcultural, translinguistic. And there are believers all over the world. And we are part of something bigger than we are, bigger than us individually, bigger than us, than our group right here. And it is so exciting to be part of something bigger. And we have a distinctive lifestyle, a lifestyle marked by dedication. Pull in the loose ends of your mind is what Peter says. And let your lifestyle be marked by discipline. Flee from every form of spiritual debauchery, if you will, that we not let our minds wander. A lifestyle marked by distinctiveness, unique, different, not weird, but different, so that people are attracted to us, marked by holiness. Leviticus tells us that. So the self-evaluation part. There's two parts here, really, in this message is application. And one is, is uh, do you grasp the significance of your position in the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember, Ephesians is written to believers. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what we would call a Christian today, you would need to grasp the truth of your position, what Christ has done for you, and your righteousness is given to you by Jesus Christ. But the second part is personal evaluation. How is your life going? Uh, and how is your life proceeding day by day? 
How do you find yourself? How is it today? Are you faithful in reading the Word of God? Are you faithful in prayer? You know, oftentimes we think prayer has to be this formal event that we do at the table or, uh, you know, in some setting, but yet you can have a lifestyle of prayer. A good charismatic friend of mine down in Dallas really illustrated that for me. He was an air conditioning and heating guy, and I went out with him on, on calls once in a while, and he would run across the problem like how to open up an air conditioning thing on a roof somewhere in downtown Dallas, and he'd start praying, just talking to God. And at first I thought he was talking to me, and I thought, what? oh, oh, he's, he's praying, he's actually praying, but he's working away. Okay, Lord, give me some strength and the knowledge and the understanding. He did that. It was just this running conversation with God. And uh, so he really taught me a lot about that. And then faithfulness and righteousness and loving your family, witness and testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ to those around you. And we'll get to that when we get, you know, the Apostle Paul at the end of this Ask the people to pray for boldness in his speech, and we all need that. If the Apostle Paul needed it, I need it. You need it. And uh, are you faithful in taking care of your possessions that God has blessed you with? Are you faithful in confession of known sin before God? Remember, uh, keep short accounts with God, as one evangelist said, and outline his word, understanding his truth. As we close here today, I just want to tell you uh, uh, another historical event in a town in Armenia, there is a woman there. She's a widow, and she's called Palasan's wife. And uh, she has her own name, of course, but everybody in the town calls her Palasan's wife. And they call her by her husband's name to show her great honor. Uh, there was a devastating earthquake in 1988. It struck Armenia, and it was nearly noon, and Palasan was at work. He rushed to the elementary school where his son was a student, and the facade was already crumbling in this earthquake, but he entered the building and began pushing children outside to safety. And after he'd managed to help 28 children out, the aftershock hit and completely collapsed the school building and killed Palasan. So the people of this city honor his memory and his, young, and his widow by calling her Palasan's wife. Sometimes a person's greatest honor is not who they are, but to whom they are related the highest honor of any believer is to be called a Christian, a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you and for me and for those who are yet to accept him as their Savior. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. And Lord, remind all of us this week as you give us our days that we would appropriate the belt of truth, that we would allow truth to pervade and permeate our lives and that righteousness that we would grasp the great position we have because the righteousness of Christ is imputed unto us. And thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. Thank you for what you've done. And I know that we will spend an eternity marveling at the grace of God in that very act. And Lord, we pray today for those who don't know you as Savior yet and pray that you would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel, to the truth that Jesus Christ said and only told the truth, and he said who he was, and he said what he came for and what he brings, and that is salvation, everlasting life for those who believe in him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father except through me. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you have opened the eyes of believers, and we pray that we would spend this week well, and that righteousness would permeate our lives today. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen.